So Colossians chapter number 1 tonight, and I want to begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read down to verse number 12. The Word of God says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love which ye have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Let's look back at verse number four and then we'll pray. The Word of God says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the privilege it is to gather in your house tonight. Lord, I want to thank you distinctly for each and every person that's come to this service this evening. Lord, there's lots of places we could be, but they've loved you enough to be in your house, and we thank you and praise you for it. I pray that you'd speak to their hearts. Lord, I pray that you would do that which would bring you the most glory and draw us closest to you. Father, we love you tonight, and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. In Colossians chapter number 1, I'm struck by the phrase that Paul uses in verse number 4. He uses it also again in verse number 9. He says, since we heard of your faith. In verse number 9, he says, since the day we heard it. Now, if you were to read through the entire book of Colossians, you'd find a lot of doctrinal truth unfolded to you. Now, that's a good thing. Uh, Doctrinal truth is always a good thing. Now, sometimes people can have doctrinal truth and it not be coupled with an effectual trust in the Lord and uh, with an application to the heart. And, and in that case, the doctrine in and of itself won't be enough. But doctrinal truth is never a bad thing. It's good to know doctrine. A lot of folks talk bad about doctrine. They say, well, doctrine's problematic and doctrine causes problems in churches. Let me tell you something. Doctrine don't cause problems in churches. People cause problems in churches. And uh, doctrine's a good thing. All Scripture's given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine. Uh, so if we don't preach doctrine, we're not preaching the Word of God, because all Scripture is profitable for doctrine. But the thing that strikes me as I read the book of Colossians is the dynamic of Paul writing this letter to this group of people who, as we read through the book of Colossians, we come to learn that he has never met face to face. In fact, in verse number 1 of chapter 2, he says this, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. You see, the people at Colossia, uh, Colossae, I guess we should say, had never met Paul. He had never met them. But word of their testimony had reached his ears. 
We believe this to be a prison epistle. In other words, that Paul wrote this while he was in prison. What a bright spot that must have been, you know. I'm sure that it was the same in Paul's day as it is in ours. I'm sure that, uh, you know, there was wicked doing all around. I'm sure that the world was in a mess. There's no question that the decadence and debauchery of the Roman Empire was rampant at that time. Uh, Christians were being persecuted in a way uh, that we've never experienced. Uh, but I believe we will one day. Uh, and, uh, you know, it would have been easy to look around and get discouraged at what was going on. I'm sure Paul faced that. You know, Paul was a human being, flesh and bone, just like me and you. And I'm sure he faced being discouraged sometime. But here it was, a bright spot in the darkness of his day, to hear that somewhere there were some people that still loved God, that were still sold out to Jesus Christ, and were still walking in the right way. And he writes to them to commend this to them, and to commend them for this. And he writes to warn them of some things. And, and he, he, more than anything, I think really the thing that birthed this letter. You ever wrote a letter before or typed a document? And it was evident that, that when you started out, you had something on your mind. By the time you finished, you just completely changed directions. that ever happened? Well, as Paul writes this letter, and I believe the Holy Ghost breathed on every word that was penned. I'm not saying that it's not the Word of God. But I think when Paul sat down and began to write this letter... I don't know that he intended on dealing with a lot of doctrinal truth. That's the direction it took, and that was of the will of God. But when he wrote down, I think he just wanted to write them a short note to encourage them for how they had encouraged him. And he writes about some things that he had heard about. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this. I think you probably are. We're all pretty smart folks in this room. Those that aren't can fake it. But did you know that a church has testimony just like an individual has testimony? A community believes something about a church. And uh, no doubt you have certain opinions about churches around town. Uh, if there's one thing we don't ever run short on, it's opinion. Amen? And you probably have some opinions about churches around town. Some of them probably churches that you've never even set foot in before. But you've heard some things about it, and it has formulated an opinion and a viewpoint in your mind. And the testimony of the church at Colossae, I think we can say it was a good testimony. And Paul talks about some of the things he's heard about. I just wonder, and I don't know, and I'm not trying to be sensationalist when I say this, but I just wonder sometimes what the testimony of our church is. I hope it's a good testimony. I believe it probably is. One of the things I like is it seems like folks know our church is a praying church. And it seems like the folks that that are connected with people that go to our church oftentimes will contact our church, want our church to pray for them when they don't ask no other church. Now, that's a good testimony. I, I'm proud of that. Not in a carnal pride, but I'm, I'm proud of that. I think that's a good thing. I think it's a good attribute. I wonder what the testimony would be of our church. Did you know this? That by and large, the testimony of a church is determined by the testimony of the folks that go to it. Everybody in this church, your testimony about you say something about Walridge Baptist Church. You may not ever talk about it. You may not ever breathe a word about it. I hope you do. I hope you talk about it. I hope you say things about it. I was visiting in the home last night of somebody that visited our church on Sunday. And uh, they say they're going to be back. I believe they probably will. I don't believe they lied to me. Uh, but they, uh, they said this about our church. They said, that's the friendliest church I've ever been in. Uh, now, that we said something with our behavior when those folks came through the door. Now, that's a good thing. Keep it up. Amen? I always tell folks, I didn't make Walridge friendly church. It was friendly when I got here. I've just tried not to mess it up. Amen? That was how the church was. I, I, I always appreciate. And I'll get to preaching here in a moment. But I, let me just say this, that I, I appreciate that we have a friendly church. 
And since the first day I walked into the church, I've appreciated that about the church. Sure makes my job a lot easier when the church is friendly. Uh, sure makes my job a lot easier when, when you know how to be good to people, and, and I appreciate that about our church. So our behavior is what determines the public testimony of our church. Uh, everyone in this room, you have folks that you know that don't go to our church. I, I've got folks that I know that don't go to our church. And the way I live and the way that I behave is a testimony about our church in their mind. The way that you live and behave, people are going to make their mind up about two things, or I should say maybe three things, based upon your actions. One thing, they're going to make up their mind about what they believe about Jesus Christ. Uh, You're a direct reflection. If you name the name of Christ, you're a direct reflection upon Jesus Christ. And your behavior is going to determine what people around you believe about Christ. Secondly, it's going to determine what they believe about Christians. Uh, You've heard this famous quote, I know that you have, but it's been said before, uh, that uh, Gandhi was quoted as saying this about Christians, that uh, he said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. In another place, he said this, that I probably would have been a Christian had I never met one. The way that you live and behave is a direct reflection upon what people believe about Christians, and then thirdly, about your local church, what people believe about your local church. And so the church at Colossae had a good public testimony. And there are three things that Paul commends. And I want to point them out to you tonight just very quickly. And I believe they are things that we ought to work on in our personal lives for our public testimony. I want you to notice, first off, he says a word about their faithfulness. Look what he says back in verse number 9. He says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. He says something first off, and by the way, I believe Paul's desires, I believe the things he was praying for are things that he had already noticed in their testimony. And when he prays for them, he mentions first off that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. I think one of the things Paul saw in them and desired for them was that they'd be faithful to the Word of God. Let me tell you something. We live in a day where people are departing quickly from a belief in the Word of God. There's a lot of things in the church that we've given on that we probably shouldn't have given on, but we have and we've let culture sway us. But you'd be amazed the kind of things that Christians will do and the kind of behavior they'll exhibit that's contrary to the Word of God. You know, when Paul wrote and when he spoke about their faithfulness, he speaks in verse 4 about their faith, and then he speaks about uh, their actual faithfulness, and he speaks about the faithfulness of Epaphras down in uh, verse number 7. In verse number 2, he calls the church at Colossae faithful brethren. The reason he put a focus on faithfulness is because in their day there was a great assault upon the Word of God. If you were here when we studied through 1 John, you remember when we did that? I mean, if you don't, I'm sorry for you because it took us like 12 weeks. I don't know where you's at, amen? But well, if you's going here and, and you were part of that study on 1 John, then you heard the word Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was a doctrine, it's still prevalent today, though it's not called Gnosticism. But uh, in that day, it was called Gnosticism. It was very prevalent in the early church. And it was basically a belief in an extra-scriptural revelation. Now, we have that in a lot of different uh, groups and denominations today, and I won't spend a lot of time focusing on it because we did that when we studied First John. But basically, the Gnostics believed that they had a superior knowledge and revelation that was extra-scriptural. In other words, God told them something that He hadn't told everyone else. And this was attacking the local church. And it was causing a lack of faith in the Word of God. It was the same lie. And by the way, we know who the author of confusion is, don't we? 
The Bible says God is not the author of confusion. We know who the author of confusion was. Everything was straightened out in the garden until the serpent came up and said, Yea, hath God said? He was sowing confusion and doubt. He's still telling that same lie today that he's always told that you can't trust the Word of God. And that lie was being told to the church at Colossae that what they had in their Bible wasn't enough. And we have that in the church today. People say, well, the Bible's good, it's just not enough. Uh, you, you read your Bible, but you're also going to need to study Hebrew, and you're going to need to study Greek, and you're going to need to have this, and you're going to need to have that, and you're going to need to have this translation, that translation. Even then you won't really know. You'll have to go to this professor, that professor. No, you'll have to buy this commentary, buy that commentary. Listen, i got books full of lexicons, dictionaries, commentaries. I'm not opposed to those things. But let me say that this Bible is sufficient. It's enough. It's all we need. It's enough. And they were saying that the Bible wasn't enough. And uh, Paul commends them for their faithfulness, but then encourages them to remain faithful to the Word of God. Greatest decision you'll make in your Christian walk, beyond the decision to, to trust Christ as your Savior, will be the day that you decide that this Bible is absolute and perfect. It'll settle more in your life than you'd believe. The day that you make up your mind that that God's Word is true and God's Word is right and it's the fountain that I need and it's the bread that will satisfy me. It's the water that will satisfy my thirst. It is the wisdom and counsel that can, that can meet my every trouble and my every trial and my every problem. When you settle that in your heart, it'll be a great day in your life. Now, all Christians need to do is just read it and obey it and stay true to it. Stay true to it. Listen, I don't care how much of society tells us that sin isn't sin. Sin is still sin. I don't care how much a society tells us that the Word of God is unreliable. It's still reliable. So he commends them to be faithful in the Word of God. Look at verse number 10. A second thing, he says that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. Not only their faithfulness in the Word, but their faithfulness in their walk. Now, when we speak of our walk, what do we mean? Well, I would use this terminology. I'm comfortable with it. It's familiar to me. I'd say our devotional life. Our personal life with the Lord. You know, there's lots of folks that aren't, they aren't the same thing in, in public that they are in private. That's one of the real problems, I think, in society today. I think it's more prevalent now than it used to be. There was a time that for the most part, what you saw was what you got. And that's just the way people live their lives. But we have all these manners and all these politics and all this, uh, all these rules today and all these things that we feel like we have to measure up to. And we've become hypocrites in the day that we live in. And there's lots of folks. I'm talking about people that say they're Christians. I'm talking about people that go to church that are living double lives. They'd never want the folks in church to know about things that go on in their life. But can I tell you that the Lord knows what goes on in your life? Every moment of your life, He's aware of it. And He knows... And so Paul commends them for their faithfulness, but encourages them to remain faithful in their walk. Let me ask you something. Do you, do you take time to work on your walk with the Lord? Me and Brother Kerry were talking. He was out visiting with me last night. and I, I told him I, I encouraged him to do this. And I don't do it like I ought to, but there's a lot of things I ought to do that I don't. Amen? That don't mean they're not bad ideas, but uh, or that they are bad ideas. But I told him, have you ever heard of what you'd call a roll tree or a priority tree? Uh, he said, no, I've never heard of that. I said, well, you do this. I think you'll enjoy it. He's disciplined enough to do it. I said, what you do is you sit down and you make a list of, of your priorities in life and you determine what you are above all things. Uh, let me give you an example. If I was to do one, I'd say before I'm anything, I'm a Christian. My greatest responsibility in life is that of a Christian. Uh, before I'm anything else, I'm a Christian. That's what I ought to be. I'd say, secondly, I'm a husband. 
I think my second responsibility before pastoring, before preaching, before that of a father, before that of a friend, is that of a husband. I believe God ordained it that way. I I think a lot of ministries would stay together and a lot of homes would stay together if men would make their minds up about that. The most important thing in the world beyond Jesus Christ is their spouse. And so I'm a a husband. Then I'd say I'm I'm a father. Uh, I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but my family is more important than the ministry. I I think that if we have our head adjusted on right, I think we'll appreciate that, don't you? I I think my family is my first ministry, don't you? Oh, we'll try that again. Brother Al's with me. I love you. I'm not trying to hurt your feelings, but now I'm telling you the truth tonight. My family is my first ministry. I think that's appropriate. I think that's biblical, amen? I think a man's first ministry is always his family. I'd say beyond that, I'm a pastor and I'm a preacher. Now now you get me, amen. Now you get me. Once the Lord and and the wife and the boy are done with me, you can have whatever's left, but it's slim pickings after that. And I told him, I said, you make a list of where your priorities lie and you make up your mind that every day you're going to do something to contribute to each of those roles. Something consciously to contribute to your testimony and your well-being as a Christian. Something to contribute to your role and, and your priority as a, as a husband and then as a father and as a preacher and as a pastor and so on. You'd have your own. I know that you would. But I, I think that every day we ought to do something deliberately to work on our life as a Christian. And it may be a matter of, of some area that God's dealt with you about that you need to yield to Him. It may be a matter of, of adding a few minutes to the time that you read the Word of God or the time that you pray. Maybe a matter of making up your mind that you're gonna, gonna seek someone out to try to act like a Christian towards them. I don't know what it might be. But he commends them for their faithfulness in their walk. And I believe we ought to be faithful in that walk. A lot of Christians ride a roller coaster in their Christian walk. And they're up one minute and they're down the next. I believe that we need steady people, don't you? I believe we need people that are just gonna, whether anybody's watching or not, whether anybody claps or not or applauds or not, Just make up their minds. They're going to live like a Christian, do the right thing no matter what. So he speaks of their walk. Look at the next phrase in verse number 10. He says this, being fruitful in every what? Good work. Now, work, we could say two things about work. We could say, one, it deals with service. I believe it does deal with service. And we could say, two, that it deals with public testimony. The work is that which people see. The walk is that which is between you and God. But the work is that which men see. And he says you need to remain faithful as you serve God. Now listen, you're here on a Wednesday night, so I'm not going to sit here and hammer on your head about this. But I will say this, that people are watching the way that we serve God. If we serve God haphazardly, people notice that. And they believe that our God's not worthy of anything more than haphazard service. I mean, if we're half in, we've got one leg in, one leg out, whether it comes to our giving or our attendance or our Bible reading or our soul winning, being a testimony, whatever it might be of our life that deals with our public testimony, when we don't do all things under the glory of God and do all things with all of our strength and all of our heart and all of our might, people look and they assume and imagine that our God's not worth it. I believe God's worth those things. I believe even if nobody saw it, God's still worth all those things. But I believe especially because we know everybody's seeing it, we ought to be careful and walk circumspectly about that. So he commends their faithfulness in their work. Then look at verse number 11. I I like this. He says, "...strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness." Now, I preached on this a while back, and, and we talked about God's strength and and how that we always, we always want God's strength for us to overcome what we're dealing with, not God's strength for us to endure in a godly way what we're 
going through. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But what he is saying is this. He's praying for him, and he's saying, I'm praying that God will give you strength for long-suffering, strength to endure, strength to stick in even when it's not easy. And I think here we could say this, that he commends their faithfulness in their wait. We're all waiting. There's things we're waiting for. Uh, one of the hardest things in the world to do is wait. And isn't that ironic? Because we can't do nothing about waiting. But I mean waiting in the right way. We've had to learn a real lesson in waiting. You know, anytime you sell or buy a house, son, you learn the meaning of the word wait. Because uh, it's just the way it is. You sit there and you think to yourself, my file is sitting on somebody's desk. If I could just get there, I'd, I'd, I'd do something. I don't even know what I'd do with it. I don't know what they do. Paying them thousands of dollars. And I have no clue what they do. I guess they stamp it or they got licenses or something. But, but you just have to wait, don't you? But you see, the key is this. Not in waiting, but in what we do while we're waiting. And that God would give us the strength. That's what patience really is. Patience is serving God while you're waiting for something to change. And he says this, you've been faithful in your waiting. I don't know what the church at Colossae was experiencing. I'm sure they experienced persecution just like every early church did. But no doubt they looked for days when, when it'd be easier. And our day that we're living in, though we have it a lot easier than they do, there's no question that we're always waiting. We're waiting for the appearing of God's dear Son. We're waiting for things to change in our circumstances. We're waiting personally. We're waiting politically. We're waiting as far as the coming of the Lord, or we could say religiously or spiritually if we want to, but it's a matter of waiting. I believe that we need to be faithful in that waiting. Let me tell you something. You can't change your situation of having to wait. But when you don't serve God while you're having to wait, that's a lack of patience. That's a lack of patience. That's not waiting in the right way. We spend a lot of time worrying about that which we can't do and that which we can't change instead of changing what we can change and doing what we can do. If we get busy where we're at, we might find out that God would open a door for us to be somewhere else. Could be He's trying to teach us to serve Him even when things aren't easy. So we find that He commends them for their faithfulness. Notice, secondly, that He commends them for their fellowship. Now, uh, you say, well, what, what big deal is fellowship? Well, have you ever seen a church that didn't have fellowship? Fellowship is a big deal. I know we always joke around here that we spell fellowship F-O-O-D. Uh, but when I speak of fellowship, I don't necessarily speak of a period of time we've set aside to get to know one another. But what I mean is the unity of the church. And he speaks about the unity of the church. And he says this. Look in verse number 5. Look what it says. He speaks of the root of their relationship. He says, For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before, notice this next phrase, in the word of the truth of the gospel. That's the root. That's what brought them together. When he talks about the beginning of their spiritual walk, he goes back where? He goes back in a direct sense to the gospel and in a broad sense to the word of God in general. And he says, This is what you gather around. You know, when people gather around the table, they may enjoy the fellowship they have. They may enjoy the information that they get. But there's one and one reason alone that people gather around the table, and that's for the food that's sitting there. That's why people are there. Let me say that the reason that we gather as a body, we may like each other. I guess you do. I hope you do. I like you. I don't know whether you like me. I'm joking. I know that, that you like me or you're real good at faking it or something, but... You may like each other, you may get along, you may find it an enlightening experience. Being around Baptists is a very enlightening experience. But there's one reason that we gather together, and that's because of the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of the truth of the gospel. We're saved by the grace of God, and then beyond that, we're fed by the grace of God. 
if it was just a matter of being saved by the grace of God, then we probably wouldn't gather but one time. But we continue together. Why? Because we're fed by the word of the truth of the gospel as well. So that's the root of their relationship. We're not gathered to make business contacts. I hate to tell you this, but if you came to this church to make business contacts, you're going to make some pretty sorry ones. We don't gather for that reason. We're not, we're not just here because uh, it's a social thing. I mean, we're all too unlikable to be here because it's a social thing. We're here because of the Word of God. We have a common bond in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we're gathered in this place. Then he speaks of their response to that root. Look at verse number 4. Look at the first phrase. He says, since we heard of your what? Faith in Christ Jesus. They were faced with the word of the truth of the gospel, and they had a choice to make. They could accept it or reject it. Those are the only two choices any human being on this earth has when he faces the gospel. He can either accept it or reject it. And the church at Colossae, they had chosen to accept the Word of God. They had chosen to accept the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not here because we hate the Bible. We're here because we love the Bible. We ought to live in that way. Amen? I'm afraid sometimes my life doesn't bespeak a great love for the Word of God, but it ought to. When I'm living right, it does. And for me to live right means that it will. But we see that the thing that he points to is the gospel, and he points to the fact they've been obedient to it. Then notice that the next phrase, the result of their response. What happened when they obeyed the gospel? And of the love which ye have to all the saints. You know what Christ said? You know how men would determine that and know that, that we were his disciples? He said, that, uh, by this shall men know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. Uh, I, I know sometimes you can get in the ditch on either side. That's the funny thing about a road. Usually there's a ditch on both sides. I know some folks that all they ever want to preach is, is just, just, I mean, nothing. Just airy, marshmallow platitudes. Uh, just, you know, the, the kind of things. I mean, they, they get their sermon outline out of Hallmark cards. I know. I know there's preachers like that. But there's another side of the ditch. The Bible says speaking the truth in love. If we won't speak the truth, we're in one side of the ditch. But if we don't speak it in love, we're in the other side of the ditch. We ought to love one another. We ought to love one another. We ought to care for one another. We ought to be concerned with the things that others are concerned about. You know what the Bible calls the the law of, of liberty? That we'd bear one another's burdens. That's the law of liberty. So fulfill the law of liberty, that we would bear one another's burdens. We ought to have a genuine love for each other. A church isn't much of a church if folks don't love each other. Now, you, you may not get along all the time. One of the things I decided when I started pastoring, I was talking to someone about this the other day, is that I wasn't going to, I mean, as a pastor always needs to keep their emotions in check. Don't you believe that? They need to be sober. The Word of God requires that. We're not to be driven uh, by our emotions. But I also wasn't never going to mask the emotions that I had. Uh, that's not easy. Sometimes you have contention with folks when you do that. But I'd rather you understand that I'm a real human being with flaws and failures. I'd rather you understand that, listen, we're in this thing together. Don't you believe that? When you voted me in, you didn't vote a perfect man in. I don't think you expected to, but I, I just want you to know you didn't vote a perfect man in when you voted me in. I make mistakes, I have flaws, I have failures. There's times when, when I'm angry and I sin not, and there's times when I'm angry and I do sin. There's times when I wallow in self-pity. There's times when I'm exalted in carnal pride. But the truth of the matter is, I'm a human being. And, and you, know what, you know what covers that? You know what deals with that? God gave us a provision for that. You know what that is? Love covereth a multitude of sins. 
I'd rather us just be human with each other. Don't you think that? Just be real people one with another. And with the people that you go to church with, there's going to be times you disagree, times you fuss and fight, argue, get put out with each other, want to throw something at somebody. If you didn't, they'd take your Baptist card away. But if we love one another, we can work through it. We can work through it. I think it's better just to be real with one another and work through it than it is to be fake and to not love one another. So he says you love one another. And he speaks of their fellowship. And finally, I want you to notice this. And I'm just going to... You lucked out because I just got two points for this. Amen? Look at verse number 6 and we'll see it again in verse number 10. He speaks of the gospel here and he says, "...which is come unto you as it is in all the world and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth." He says in verse number 10, echoes this sentiment, but, but he puts the responsibility on them. He says that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He commends them for their faithfulness and for their fellowship, but he commends them for their fruitfulness. A, a growing church will bear fruit. Now, let me say that in my mind, at least, there's two types of fruit in the Bible as we speak of Christians. There's fruit in the sense of souls for your labor. Souls for your labor. I, I believe that's a good thing. We wouldn't do what we do in the next two weeks if we didn't believe God could save sinners. We believe that. We believe God. We've seen it too many times. We believe that God can save sinners. I believe the church ought to be fruitful in that respect. But I don't believe that's the fruitfulness that Paul's talking about here. There are places that Scripture does address it. But then there's what we call fruit of the Christian life. And sometimes I believe it's called the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Christian life is the fruit of the Spirit. There's no fruit in the Christian life that's of self. Uh, in my flesh, Paul said, dwelleth no good thing. So the only fruit that a Christian can bear in respect to their Christian life is the fruit of the Spirit. You cannot divorce the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of the Christian life. They are one and the same. By the way, it's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. You say, but I thought it mentioned nine different things. And it does twice in the Word of God. It mentions the, the fruit of the Spirit. But even there, it's not speaking of nine different fruits. It's speaking of the ninefold fruit of the Spirit. Where the Spirit of God is, these things will be, these things will abide. He says about the church at Colossae that they were fruitful. They were growing. They were uh, developing as a church. Everything that is, uh, that is alive in this world is, is in one of two states. It's either growing or it's dying. And a church is no different. A church is either growing or dying. It's not always measured by how many people are coming through the door. It's not always measured by how often the baptism waters are stirred. Now, that, that is a, a meter and a metric you can measure it by, and, and, and there's some validity to that. But there's a growth that's beyond numerical and visible growth, and that's the growth of us as, as mature Christians, us developing and growing as Christians, as children of God. And he says that the church at Colossae was growing, and that was one of the things that he heard about them, about the fruit of the gospel in their life, in their life. He says that the same way that the gospel's bringing forth fruit all over the world, it's bringing it forth in your life. But he says also about their fruitfulness that they ought to have in direct obedience to the Word of God as a result of that direct obedience. And I think there's two things that we notice here about this fruit, and you'll see it there in the Scripture. But I want you to turn to John chapter 15. And I just want to point out two verses to you. Can I do that? Is that okay? John chapter number 15. You know where we're turning. We're turning to the chapter of the true vine. Christ said, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman, ye are the branches. I want you to notice a few things that the Lord says about spiritual growth. 
I don't think that he's saying here, speaking about growth in respect to, uh, to soul winning. There is a place for that. But I believe if he was talking about growth in respect to soul winning, then folks that don't win souls to the Lord, uh, then the Lord would cut them off, take them out of this world. And uh, I'm glad that's not the case. There wouldn't be very many people in church anywhere. Amen? He's talking about, about growth in their Christian walk. And notice, first off, the constancy of their fruitfulness. He says about the church at Colossae and their fruitfulness that they have been fruitful since the day that they heard the gospel of truth. In other words, they heard the gospel and they responded to it in obedience and Christ saved them. And when that happened, from that day since, they had been fruitful. Let me say that our fruitfulness, our growth, our forward progression in our Christian walk is something that ought to be constant. It's not to say it's going to be in leaps and bounds. I found this to be true, that there are plateaus in the Christian walk. Haven't you found that to be so? Or in periods of time, you can point to and say, man, it seemed like I just grew by leaps and bounds. Let me say that even when we come to the plateaus, there ought to be a slight incline to it. We ought not grow stale and stagnant. You know, that's what happens to sitting water. Be it ever so pure, if it sits long enough, it'll stagnate. And that's what happens to us. Just because we don't let sin into our lives, that doesn't mean we won't stagnate. Just sitting there, just being there, any little thing can cause stagnation in our lives. What did the Lord say about our fruitfulness? Well, look at verse number 5. He says this, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. And he's going to say a word about what he does when we stop bringing forth fruit in a moment. But suffice it to say, for the time being, that Christ says the proper working order for the life of the believer is that they abide in fellowship and obedience to me. And through that, I bring forth fruit in their life. Because after all, it's not the branches bringing the fruit. They may bear the fruit, but they don't bring the fruit. It's the vine that brings the fruit. The vine is the root. The vine is the source. You ought to be on a constant forward march in your Christian wall. Now you say, whoa, wait a minute, preacher. Do you mean you have no setbacks? No, I never said that. Do you mean, preacher, that you never take a step backwards? No, I didn't say that. Do you mean, preacher, that you never make mistakes? Nope, didn't say that either. What I did say is this, that when I do sin, it's not the will of God. Oh, let me say that again. I think that's better than you gave it credit for. (laughs) When we do sin, it's not the will of God. It's never the will of God for you to sin. Sometimes we get this feeling that just because everybody messes up, we ought to mess up. Or that somehow it's okay to mess up. Let me tell you something. God's given you all things that pertain unto life and godliness. And mark her down. You will make mistakes. But when you make mistakes, it's not because the Lord let you down, nor is it because it's the will of God. We ought to be moving forward. That's what God expects of us. Now, God loves us enough to know we're not always going to. God loves us to know that, uh, enough to know that we're going to make mistakes, and He still loves us in spite of those things. And I make mistakes, and you make mistakes, and that's true. But the design of God is a forward march. Not staying where we're at or going backwards. When God took them out of Egypt, He already had a destination picked out for them. And their their plan should have been to keep marching until they got there. They did keep marching, but through their disobedience, they marched for 40 years instead of entering into the place. And do you know why? Because when they came to it, they wanted to stay where they were at. They came to the wilderness of Zin. You remember in Kadesh Barnea. They came to the wilderness of Zin. 
They sent spies in. The spies came back and said, no, we can't do it. Let's just stay right where we're at. God said, you'll not only stay where you're at, you'll spend 40 years here and you'll die in this wilderness. God's expectation is for us to progress forward. Then notice, secondly, and I'm done. Look at verse number 2. The Bible says this, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. I've been uh, reading up a little bit on gardening. You know, we're getting us a little bit of land, and I wasn't raised a farmer. <laughs> Amen. I, I guess that'd be okay, but I wasn't raised as a farmer, and I've never... Dad always did a little gardening, uh, and while he got to do the gardening, I got to do the mowing. Did you grow up like that? That's how I grew up. And so I'm reading and studying a little bit, and I was telling Nick, now don't let that, don't give him a copy of this, okay? Because of what I'm about to say. But, because he don't, because he'd be mad at me for saying this, but I was talking to Nick and I said, let me tell you something. Dad knows a lot about gardening, but he keeps a terrible garden. He grows a lot, but he has the worst looking garden of any man I've ever met in my life. He has some good looking produce. But his garden's pit. Somebody, isn't that true? Get in trouble with me. Isn't that true, Tracy? He'll work on it for about two weeks. Then he'll get tired of it. He'll say, ah. You know, that's how dad sounds. Say, ah, I'm just going to let it grow up. And then there dad is, like six weeks later, you know, marching through this jungle, picking up cucumbers and tomatoes and stuff. Hey, that's his business. That's how he wants to grow a garden. But I've been reading and studying it, and I found this to be true. If you want a nice garden, you know what you have to do? You have to cultivate it. You have to cultivate it. You have to get in and get the weeds out. And sometimes if you want a plant to really grow, you know what you have to do? You have to cut the small plants out. You have to cut that which is not producing away so that that which does produce has room to grow. You know what happens when you start living for the Lord? God's going to come in and take some things out of your life that are hindering you from producing. He's going to cultivate you. That's a necessary exercise. You ever notice how when you start serving God, all of a sudden battles start happening? Man, I wasn't doing anything for God and it was easy, but I made my mind up I was going to serve Him. And now everything's gone to pieces. You know why? Satan's battling you and God is pruning you. and He's pulling some things out of your life that don't need to be there so that you've got room to grow for Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. We ought, we ought to... We ought to plan to be fruitful Christians. You're going to have enough mistakes on accident. Go ahead and plan to do the right thing. Plan to live for Jesus Christ. You'll have plenty of times when you make mistakes and mess up, just like I do. Go ahead and plan to do the right thing. Plan to be fruitful. Plan to serve the Lord. And you know what? I believe our church can have the same testimony that the church at Colossae had. Maybe we'll encourage someone that just makes up their mind that nobody's living for Christ anymore. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing, one of those folks that get discouraged, say, man, nobody lives for God anymore. Somebody say, hey, now, let me tell you something. There's a church over there in North Knoxville. And they may not be the biggest church in the world, but they're the real thing. And they're doing something for God the best as they can. God visits that place and God does something there. Everybody else may be stepping back and everybody else may be backing down. And everybody else may be bending and bowing and breaking. There's a little place on Wall Ridge Road that still preaches the Word of God, still worships, worships in the right way, still tries to win people to Christ. Could be that there might be somebody discouraged, maybe like Paul was, gets word of our testimony. You know what they might hear? There might be some sinner that says, man, look at all these hypocrites around. Somebody comes along and says, there's a place on Wall Ridge Road. 
And they're not perfect people, but they can tell you how to find God. They can tell you how to find God. They know the Lord. Could be that God does a work through our public testimony.